Captain America, one of his central conflicts is, you know, I want to believe in authority because I was raised to believe in authority. But now I realize that authority are human beings that aren't, you know, necessarily motivated as they should be. Happy 4th of July, everyone, and welcome to Good is in the Details. I'm your host, Gwendolyn Dalski, and our episode on the morality of Batman got a lot of shares, a lot of clicks. Thank you so much for that. But of course, we had to have Professor Mark D. White back. This time, he's talking about Captain America. Kind of perfect for 4th of July holiday. Mark has this uncanny ability to take the superheroes that we love, these comics, these storylines, and delve into the philosophical underpinnings that really make these stories great. Captain America, the virtuous man, the man out of time, we learn, is he too perfect? What would he think today about American discourse and the divide? Would he wear a mask? And what would he think about Black Lives Matter? What are the virtues of Captain America and what can we learn about living well through Captain America? I'm joined once again by co-host, LA lawyer, transit whisperer, the very funny Rudy Salo. You want to tweet Rudy Salo? It's at Salo Rudy. You want to get in touch with the podcast? We're on Instagram, good is in the details pod. Tag us. If you're listening to an episode, take a screenshot. That would be very cool. Or you can tweet us at in the details pod. I also want to say thank you everyone for your support, for the reviews, for the patrons. It's very exciting to see this podcast grow. I started it because in my philosophy courses, I noticed that my students really did seem to enjoy these deep conversations. And I thought, why not bring that outside of the classroom? See if other people would enjoy them. And it seems to be going well. So (laughs) thank you so much. I'm glad you're enjoying them. I'm glad that this is a platform for maybe thinking more about deep issues about the good life. If you haven't yet, please rate and review the show. That helps the show continue to grow. And yeah, let's talk about Captain America. Okay, Mark, welcome back to the show. So we're going to be talking about the virtues of Captain America. And I have a lot of notes here. I love virtue theory. I really like it. And one of the reasons I like it is because it puts responsibility on the shoulders of the agent. And I think that that's absolutely timely. Um, Rudy, we did an episode the other day when I was talking about Aristotle's virtue ethics. And that I really like that, especially when it comes to my classes that have to do with technology, because technology often outpaces existing, or I'm sorry, yeah, outpaces existing law, which would make virtue infinitely more important when it comes to making decisions. So when it comes to Captain America... Can I make a recommendation for the folks that are out there like me who don't have virtues? No, just kidding. That don't know (laughs) virtue ethics. You know, for the non-philosophy geniuses that you two are, can somebody just give a really brief explanation of what that is before we talk about Captain America himself and virtue ethics? A virtue at its core is a positive character trait in its most general sense. The ancient Greeks wanted to know what does it mean to live life well? And what it meant to live life well was to exercise these positive character traits. So a lot of times when we think about right and wrong, we'll think, did you, you know, like help a lady across the street or did you follow this rule or did you break a rule? And virtue ethics takes us in a different direction. It's asking, are you enhancing your capacity for reason? Are you flourishing as a human being? And then the rules really are 
byproducts of, um, of a strong character or they're unnecessary if you have a strong character. So to create a rule to say, don't cheat, would not be necessary if you embodied the character of the joy of being honest. So um, that is the foundation of what it means to live life well and to be good. Is it possible that I did not know that because I have no positive character traits? Is it just a possibility? <laughs> yeah. I'm just asking if it's a possibility. Someone had to tell you, Rudy. I want to hear it from the professors. So thank you. Thank you. Rudy, wit is a virtue. No, so come on. No, go. it's not. Really? Wit? <laughs> is that true, Mark? Or is she kidding me? Is she pulling my yeah. skin yeah. Okay, I'm going to yield totally to is. Mark's expertise here. So Mark, you go ahead. No, that was great one. I, I, I think that was a great explanation. I, when I explain it, I, you know, let me tie it into a previous discussion we had about Batman and ethics, where with Batman, the main systems of ethics we talked about were utilitarianism, maximizing the good versus deontology, doing what's right, avoiding what's wrong. And the way virtue ethics, in my mind, contrasts with both of those ties into something you said. Both of those focus on what you do or don't do where virtue ethics focuses on what type of person you are. And those are linked, of course. I mean, the type of person you are determines what you do or don't do. But virtue ethics, you know, changes the focus from are you doing well, are you doing right, are you doing good, to say what type of person are you who does these things or doesn't do these things. Like you said, you know, you don't have to think about do I follow a rule to not lie if I'm generally an honest person. And that that is, for the ancient Greeks, the way to also enjoy your life. It's not right. just a matter of... So sometimes people will think if you're, you know, if you're being good or if you're being moral, then you're not enjoying your life. But for the ancient Greeks, those two things go together. Okay. Right. The, the saying virtue is its own reward. Yes, yes. Yeah. And you mentioned that in here with Captain America, that when he's acting in such a manner, it is for its own sake. Right. Okay. Well, the virtues of Captain America. So I know a couple ways that I want to go about this. The virtues themselves, but something that you were interested in was how it relates to today and right. why these virtues are important for understanding a divided America that we see today. That being said, may I ask, when did you publish this? When did you write this? <laughs> I knew that was coming up. Uh, the book was published in 2014 to coincide oh. with the release of the second Captain America movie, The Winter Soldier. Okay. All right. And, so and I realized it sounds sort of optimistic and naive in 2020. I probably would not have written it the same way today. Okay. We're going to have to get into that. Yeah. We're going to yeah, have to get into yeah, that yeah, unfortunately. for sure. I mean, I'm sure we will through our <laughs> questioning, but I can't wait to hear what your answer to that point is going to be. So, Mark, let's start with um, what are the virtues of Captain America? Let me just start by saying when I, you know, when I do any of these books and I kind of look at a superhero or a superhero team or character and, and try to excavate sort of their overall moral approach, I mean, Captain America was an easy one to look at and cast in terms of virtue ethics. Because, I mean, he is known in the Marvel Universe as the moral center of the Marvel Universe. And given that this is comics, he dies from time to time and people mourn him and the universe goes on without him and then he comes back. And you always notice when this happens that the, the Marvel Universe itself becomes sort of untethered and the heroes lose their way and they don't know what they're doing. And then when Captain America comes back, he rallies them all. He provides the, the moral compass they need. Not that they all necessarily agree with him all the time, but they know that, you know, here's the guy that sets the standard that we have to compare our own ethics against. 
Uh, it's kind of like, you know, when we teach ethics in class and we, we focus on central figures like Aristotle and Bentham and Kant or Mill. And it's, we're not saying you have to agree with these people, but you have to know what these people are saying. You give them the benefit of the doubt that they've thought about this. And then you sort of evaluate your own moral code versus theirs. They set the benchmark. And Captain America sort of serves that role in the Marvel Universe is that he sets the benchmark for all other heroes to say, yes, I'm like him in this way, but I'm not like him in that way. And if everything's gone to chaos, then he's the one that can always look towards to at least start to guide them back towards right. And part of this is that his ethics is, I think, best described in terms of virtue ethics, though in the book I do reference that he's also a deontologist to some extent. Because he does believe, he believes in a certain, you know, uh, a responsibility towards duty. He is, you know, connected with the military. Duty is very important. But virtue is also very important there as well. So it's a nice blend for someone like Captain America. Another reason I chose to do that in kind of an overall theme of the book that I, I think you were hinting towards before, Gwen, was that one of the reasons I wrote the book is that especially before the movies started coming out, Captain America was very widely misunderstood among the broader public that didn't read the comics. And he was usually thought of as an old-fashioned uh, anachronism. He was behind the times. He was a jingoistic, flag-waving toady of the U.S. government. And he was just a gosh-golly, you know, simplistic ethics. And this was so pervasive. And that people have said that the public understands Captain America much better now. And I think that's down to, you know, Chris Evans' magnificent portrayal in the movies where he brought my Captain America, my Steve Rogers to life, as well as the writers and directors. But like I said, before those movies started appearing, people had a very simplistic view of Captain America, especially in terms of saying he has old fashioned ethics that don't apply to the modern day. And so part of the reason I wrote the book was to say that, no, they're not old-fashioned ethics. They're very straightforward. You know, virtue ethics is, a, is an approach that is very, it's firm and flexible at the same time. You know, it's firm because it hammers these core qualities of courage and honesty and honor. But they're general enough that they're adaptable to changing circumstances. Like, you know, like your point, Gwen, about technology racing ahead of human convention and we need something simple to fall back on to apply to it. Uh, I always mention this to my students when we do law-related classes, that copyright law is like this. You know, does the ease of making digital copies now, does it demand a change in copyright law? Or do the basic principles and ideas of copyright law still apply to it? They just need application in a new context. And so that's the argument I try to make with Captain America's virtues. It says, you know, the, the idea that he believes in courage and honor and honesty don't make him old-fashioned. That makes them solid but still general enough that it can be adapted to modern circumstances. Okay, so honesty never goes out of style. It's just you have new circumstances, new situations where you may have to reevaluate what exactly being honest means. Like Aristotle says, I, I don't know, the, can't remember the quote exactly, but when you're implementing these virtues, when you're putting these virtues into action, like deciding when to be honest, you know, let's say you have to break some bad news to your best friend. You, you just find found out that, another one of your friends just passed. And so you have to tell you one of your surviving best friends, but you know, your best friend is going through some stuff. Maybe one of his relatives is sick. Maybe he just lost his job and you have to decide, you know, when do I tell him? How do I tell him? Do I wait? Do I take him out for drinks first? Do I just, do I just rip the bandaid off? How do I do it? And that's what Aristotle talks about when he talks about implementing these virtues. Cause just saying, be honest, doesn't tell us anything. 
Right. And so Aristotle says, I can't remember, again, the exact passage, but it's be honest in the right way at the right time in the right place to the right degree. In other words, there's a lot of judgment involved in exactly how to implement these virtues. And so I try to make that point throughout the book that even though Captain America's ethics can be best described in terms of these virtues, that doesn't mean that his decision making is easy because these virtues are very general. The, the hard part is how to put them into practice how to be courageous, when to be courageous, to what extent to be courageous. And definitely, you know, the standard for me being courageous is different from the standard for Captain America being courageous. So it's also very dependent on the person doing them. So yeah, that, relative to ability and circumstances, what right. I would I would teach, like I would have the capacity to be courageous, but it would look very different from somebody the size of like Dwayne Johnson. Right. Hey, Mark, just, just to touch upon something that you that you brought up in that explanation. Number one, I agree with you in that people did have this, um, you know, man, man from the past frozen and then, you know, brought in the past being World War II when America was filled with strong, brave men and things were, you know, we really needed, we really needed somebody like a Captain America back then. And he brought into more modern times and people thinking of him in that past way. And I think your book does an excellent job of explaining the virtues of Captain America and why he's not old fashioned. You brought up a word and it's a word that, that I um, am obsessed with. And I remember learning the word in the seventh grade and that's uh, jingoism and being mm -hmm. jingoistic. And for right. some reason that word has always stuck with me. Like I've, of all the big words that I learned when I was a child, that seemed to be the one that stayed with me. And would you even say, I mean, if you just looked at Captain America and you see that he's wearing the American flag and he's got the shield and everything, when you look at him, I agree, it screams jingoism and, and right. the problems of jingoism. But if you really think about Captain America himself, he probably would be against the jingoism. Oh, um, absolutely. Uh, like absolutely. 100%, like because yeah. the might of America doesn't make it right. It's the great things about America are the virtues that are allegedly laid out in our uh, de Declaration of Independence and, and some of the foundational principles of our Constitution that, you know, Captain America is supposed to be supporting. But I, I just wanted to ask the question, do you agree that, in fact, Captain America would be anti-jingoistic? Oh, absolutely. The central phrases I try to emphasize in the book and everything I've done since has been that Captain America always believes in principle over policy or principle over politics. In other words, he, he believes in the founding principles of the country, which I, you know, I, you can state any, any number of ways, but in the book, I think I say liberty, equality, and justice. And of course, those are all umbrella terms themselves, so they can be implemented differently. But one of the surprising things that people who aren't familiar, and again, this was mainly before the movies, because we've seen quite a bit of this in the movies, but the people that weren't familiar with the character years ago was that even though, you know, you, you look at him, you don't know anything about him. You think, oh, my gosh, this is like super patriot. He just supports the government and whatever they do. And once you read the comics, you see that there are numerous very weighty episodes in the comics where Captain America resists the government, stands up to the government, because as he says, the government, you know, part of his role is to defend America, to defend the American people, to defend the American dream. And sometimes that has to be against the American government when the people in government are not living up to the principles they're sworn to uphold. So he holds our government leaders to the same standards that he holds himself and anyone else. 
and that plays out, and you and you wrote about this in the book, and that plays out with the Superhuman Registration Act that's passed right. by Congress. His he believes that that act, and you know what, eventually leads leads to civil war, is against American, true American ideals, and that is right. an example of him going against the American government. Right, right. And there's also been important stories where there is corruption in the American government. You know, those are kind of obvious, where actually a supervillain will infiltrate the government. And then the government literally is a supervillain. It's not really so much a political critique. There's been other stories where, you know, a a shady group within government. uh, There's one story where uh, there's the, the, the captain episode where he was... They, they asserted their control over him to say, you work for us. We can tell you what to do. And he says, no, you can't tell me what to do. I know what to do. So he actually gave up the role of Captain America and they gave it to more of a jingoistic, nationalistic, more forceful, militaristic person, kind of like a, a very right wing version of Captain America or closer. It may have been in a meta view. It may have been the writer trying to make a, the point that this is what a lot of people outside comics think Captain America is. Let's see what would happen if Captain America actually was this. And then the true Captain America had to come back to fight his replacement, which is exactly what happened in the comic. The fascinating thing about the Civil War episode, and I wrote an entire separate book about this, is that 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 was one of the main times that Captain America resisted the government when it was actually implementing the will of the people because the Superhero Registration Act was passed. I mean, this story was really a, a huge analog for post 9-11 and the pa- passage of the Patriot Act. So just as the Patriot Act was passed very hurriedly after the tremendous tragedy of 9-11, and of course, accusations have been made that some of it was passed a little too quickly, a little too opportunistically. This was the same way Captain America regards the Superhuman Registration Act because it was passed after a horrible tragedy created by some young superheroes that resulted in the death of dozens of school children in uh, Connecticut. And so the American people spoke up that, you know, we were sick of these superheroes running around unaccountable, unregistered. And so they pressed Congress to pass the Superhuman Registration Act. And when, when Captain America refused to obey this law, you know, several other people made the point to him, say, you're not, you're not resisting the law of a corrupt administration anymore. You're resisting a law passed democratically by the Congress in response to citizen outrage. And he says, I, I still think it's wrong, you know. Just because the law was legitimately passed doesn't mean he's going to agree with it when he still thinks it stands against American principles as he sees them. You brought this up with John Stuart Mill and his essay on liberty, or his book on liberty. What would we say? Long essay or short book? Short, uh, <laughs> short book. Short book. Um, Give him the royalties. <laughs> that the just because the majority says so or because the law is there, it doesn't follow that that is justice. And that's where we get the notion of the tyranny of the majority that, um, you know, it made me think of a couple of contemporary issues where the Supreme Court ruled against majority the way people had voted. And people were outraged by saying, look, the will of the people is clear. This is how people voted. But actually, it doesn't follow. What if Mill asks in On Liberty, what if the majority of people are going according to custom as opposed to reason? What is rational? And that's a that's an interesting point where that you bring up where I guess Captain America is is in that boat. Right, exactly. Because I mean, that's that's basically the role of most of the protections in the Bill of Rights is to protect individual rights and interests against eventual democratic will. 
So let's, you know, a very contemporary example, let's say a certain category of speech is regarded as dangerous. And so the people overwhelmingly guide their elected representatives to pass a law banning a certain, you know, certain type of speech, certain venue of speech, speech at a certain time in a certain place. And that law may be passed according to, to democratic standards, but the fact that it violates this protected right, that's the, the best example to me of what Mill was talking about. People often take tyranny of the majority too far. They think you're just arguing against majoritarian rule, but it's really just protecting, you know, most emphatically it's protecting minorities from the majority. For instance, if, if you know, after some horrible tragedy, the American people guided their elected representatives to vote some action against some group of people, like we can imagine very well could have happened after 9-11. The Bill of Rights stands up to protect those people and say, you know, so what if 90% of the population wants this, these rights protect everybody, including the 10% of the population who the 90% may not like right now. Right. I've, I've got a little question later about America's focus on individual rights and how that plays out in the Captain America universe. Um, I feel like Captain America probably would be one that would always focus on individual rights because um, at the end of the day, this is just my opinion playing the amateur philosopher here, but this is what I got from your book. But Captain America doesn't believe that the, that the ends justifies the means and he's not a utilitarian. Would that be correct? Generally, especially when you oppose him to Iron Man, who's very much a utilitarian. And so there's many times in the book where, I, where you know, it comes down to a philosophical battle. And sometimes they use this exact language. You know, Iron Man will be defending some decision he made on utilitarian grounds. And he'll tell Captain America, you don't understand this because you don't believe the ends ever justify the means. Sort of both of them are sort of exaggeration because even if Captain America were a pure deontologist as well as a, as, as well as a virtuous person, it's not that the ends never justify the means. It's that they don't always justify the means. So... You know, I mean, you know, let's let's take a very contemporary example of rights versus the common good. The whole idea of, you know, should we wear masks outside? Ingo, I was, hope, the, I was hoping you were oh, going to go you, there. You knew about that, did you? I did. No, I was hoping you were <laughs> going to go there and talk about it within this context. Well, yeah, because that's the idea that, you know, yes, we have rights. Yes, we have common interests. And one is not going to win over the other in every sense. In other words, rights are not always absolute. The common good is not always absolute. They have to be weighed against each other in specific circumstances. And in my view, the right to go outside with your face not covered by a mask is not an important integral right in American constitutional law. It's not at all. Okay. I mean, but what would, it's, it's, but, it's, but what would, but what would Captain America do? <laughs> I think he would wear a mask and he would urge everyone else to wear a mask because it protects other people at very, 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 very little cost to you. It's inconvenient. It's sweaty. You know, it, you can't, people don't see when you're smiling. I, I get all this, but you're saving someone else's life. No, I, I agree. It, you know, it, I know I'm not, I'm not trying to convince you. I'm saying this oh. is what Captain America, you know, in, in ter- he, he sees both sides of this. He obviously believes that there are important rights that need to be protected from an overzealous government. Okay. But he also believes that people should stick together and support each other and help each other. And especially when this comes at very little cost, if it were a question of, 
yeah, I, I don't even know what it would be. But if it's a, a question of you had to give up one of your protected rights stated in the Constitution to help other people. If we told people you can't speak when you're outside to help to save other lives, that'd be another thing because obviously a government could misuse that to help to, you know, to tamp down on speech. Okay. But we're talking about wearing a mask, just like you wear your shirt and shoes when you go into a store, you take off your shoes when you get on a plane. I mean, all these things we accept, you know, because we understand they make sense. Even if we don't think taking your shoes off before we get on an airplane makes sense, we all do it. And, you know, it's, and that, that's really the, the contrast between all the, all, the, all the restrictions we do accept in the interest of our common good. But this one is so polarized, I think, because it's loaded up with all the politics and whether you're for the president or against the president. And it becomes more about that if it, if it were just a neutral matter. If, if we didn't have such a divided populace about the current administration, I think we'd be much more accepting of, you know, let's wear a mask to protect our neighbors. A hundred percent. And you're talking yeah. to the guy, if you've, if you've listened to any of the episodes, you're talking to the crazy person here. I wear three masks when I get outside. I wear a, I put a filter. In, and that was in, before coronavirus. I wear a bandana <laughs> over it. And, you know, hearing that Captain America would support mask wearing, I might, I might go out and get a Captain America uh, laden mask. So on this, do. I will. Uh, <laughs> on this point in, in the COVID-19 pandemic, do we need a Captain America type figure today to be standing up and just making the same argument that you did? Whatever rights that you think you have, think of the greater good, think of the greater people and just wear the damn mask when you go outside. Is that what we need today? I, I think so. I mean, I think the closest we have, and even he's politicized, is Dr. Fauci. You know, he seems to be the one person kind of in the relevant group of people that many Americans from both sides trust. And, you know, he's certainly said enough, especially I think, I think just yesterday that, yes, we have to wear masks. And I, I, I think people have done a wonderful job trying to get across the point that the mask doesn't protect you. The mask protects other people. So in other words, it's not, it's not like, you know, motorcycle helmets. Personally, I don't care for motorcycle helmet laws because to me, they're paternalistic. And it doesn't protect anyone else. If you want to go ride a motorcycle without a helmet on and you want to take that risk, I'm not saying I would do that myself. I would wear a helmet, but it, that's my choice. If someone else wants to ride a motorcycle without a helmet and risk their lives, that's their concern. Of course, they have loved ones, the healthcare system, everything else, but that's primarily their concern. But with masks, you know, the person wearing the mask, you're not wearing it to protect yourself. You're wearing it to protect other people. If it was just to protect yourself, then I would agree it should be a personal choice, okay? But it's like vaccinations. You're doing it to protect other people. And in that case, there, you do have an obligation to wear one even if you don't want to. So you think as well, Captain America would also get vaccinated? Oh, absolutely. Great. See, I, you know, I mean, I, I got to admit, but as, in preparation for this, for this podcast, I read a good portion of your book, I might have watched a couple of, of the movies. I'm glad to hear there's a good por portion. No, it's very, it was a very good portion of it. And, and, and I've really, I have fallen as a child, as a child, I loved the Captain America comic books and I loved the storyline and because I had this hatred of the Red Skull because I knew he was this, the Red Skull was this racist bastard. 
that just you know embodies racism and, and all of the all of its terribleness and that Captain America was you know diametrically opposed to that I always love that mm. but for some reason over time the image the, the the and maybe this was post 9/11 and flag waving and jingoism maybe the flag kind of you know swayed me another way and and convinced me that nah Captain America that's kind of ridiculous that guy doesn't have any real flaws he there's no way he's even a human being but your book and your explanations of them have helped make me fall back in love with the guy oh, cool and dare I say, you know, Batman was my number one favorite. And I know in your book, you said that if there's a corollary in the Marvel universe versus the DC universe, you know, there's Batman, there's Captain America. And, and when they did the crossover, those two kind of work together. I dare say Captain America is on, on level now with Batman. And so you've resurrected my love for Captain America. Oh, wow. Through this. I just wanted to say that. Oh, thank you. Well, I, that's great to hear. Rudy, you touched on something that I, I have here that Captain America is a role model, that ultimately is an old role model. But one of the things, Mark, that I thought was interesting you wrote about, and I was hoping you could expand, was that our characters usually have some sort of a flaw, except Captain America doesn't really have flaws. And can you be too perfect and still be a role model? And you kind of asked that question, well, why not? Why do we assume that you have to be flawed? So could you expand on that? I can kind of see both sides of that because, you know, part of what you want to see in a role model is someone who overcame adversity, who overcame flaws, who recognized what could be better within themselves and improved it. And, you know, Captain America, that's hard to find. In the book, I explained how when Stan Lee and Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko and the rest developed the, the modern Marvel universe in the early 60s, every hero had a flaw or a shortcoming. Tony Stark was vain and Hank Pym was neurotic, and Peter Parker was had low self-esteem, etc. And when they decided to bring Captain America back from the Golden Age in Avengers number four, they were faced, at least this is how I interpret it, they were faced with bringing back someone that was invented to be the ideal person, the ideal man. And so how do they make him a modern Marvel character while still leaving him Captain America? And I think they did this in two ways by introducing complexity, because in the 1940s, he wasn't really much of a character at all. He was very much the patriotic symbol, the rallying cry during World War II to boost patriotism. He was jingoistic in a mild sense. He, he really wasn't much of a character. He was a very simplistic superhero, like all of them in the Golden Age, and a lot of them you know, now. But when they brought him into the Mar modern Marvel Universe in the 60s, when all the characters were more complex, they had to give him some more depth. And they did this, in my opinion, in two ways. One, they had him mourn the loss of Bucky, his sidekick from World War II, who at the time he thought was gone because they didn't bring him back till like 2005. And then the fact that he was thrown out of his time. He was a man out of time, is the phrase. And Rudy mentioned this before. And the fact that he had these two hangups, they weren't, they weren't flaws in a sense, but they were, they were hangups, they were issues that he struggled with for decades. You know, how do I get over the fact that I let my partner die? Even though it wasn't his fault, he has this outsized sense of responsibility, which is definitely not virtuous. He takes on too much more than he can reasonably take on. But he still feels responsible for the fact that, you know, listen, I'm Captain America. I'm the perfect man. I should have been able to save him. Why couldn't I? And then the fact that he's just thrown decades out of his time. And the, the way Marvel does it now is, you know, even though time moves forward in the Marvel Universe, it's generally understood that all these characters have existed for about 10 years. 
So Captain, you know, whatever year it is now, Captain America came out of the ice 10 years ago. So, you know, every time they kind of retell his origin and update the, the time when he came out of the ice, he missed more stuff. It's not 1962 anymore or 1963. It's, it's you know, 1990s, 2000s, etc. So by giving him this complexity, it's not so much they gave him flaws, but they gave him complexes to have to deal with, anxieties to have to deal with and have to combat. But another point I try to make in the book is even if he doesn't have any flaws, even if he is a perfect person, he can still be a role model, even if you want a role model to have flaws. If you don't want a role model to have flaws, that's fine. But because we see him struggle with the complexities of making moral decisions, complicated you know, decisions and moral dilemmas. And again, that gets back to what we said before about virtues being just very basic templates for how you actually act in particular situations. Yes, you want to be courageous, you want to be honest, you want to be honorable, you want to exhibit leadership, you want to exhibit good judgment, but that doesn't tell you exactly what to do in a certain situation. And he has to put these into practice with all the contrasting considerations and decide what to do in a tough situation. And you can see this, you know, every time all these, the, the famous stories the one I think, the ones I think of are the ones where he has to face up against the government or against authority, whom he's accustomed to giving the benefit of the doubt until they show that they don't deserve that. And so he's got this pull between, you know, he generally has a baseline respect for authority because he did come up in the military. He, do, he wants to believe that those people in charge have the best interests at heart. But on the other hand, when he sees that they don't, that causes a conflict. And then when he sees definitely enough that they don't, then he decides, okay, they don't deserve my respect anymore. You know, the American people deserve better. I have to act. So this is, you know, just like with Batman, the struggle is between how do I protect the people of Gotham while I continue not to kill the Joker who's killing them. Captain America, one of his central conflicts is, you know, I want to believe in authority because I was raised to believe in authority. But now I realize that authority are human beings that aren't you know, necessarily motivated as they should be. Sometimes it's hard for me to relate to Captain America because he is so, you know, not flawed and perfect and, and, and he always does right. There's one way that I do relate to him. I think, I mean, Mark, correct me if I'm wrong, because he is a man, you know, out of time and he was decades later frozen from ice and he missed a couple of decades. Is my obsession and reminiscence of how great the 1980s were and how much I want to go back to them, does that make me like Captain America at all? Or is that, or am I way off base? Did you have a question, Gwen? <laughs> <laughs> Just, you don't you don't love the like, 1980s either. I mean, it's the, don't you want to go back? I want to oh, go back yeah. in time. I yeah. was wondering, Mark, if you could also thank you, Rudy, for that. Can I build okay, on this for ahead. a second, Gwen? I didn't mean sure. to interrupt you, but there's there's a fantastic story. Uh, it, was, it was about you know ten years ago, I guess. It was a mini series called Captain America: Man Out of Time, and it was written by Mark Wade, one of the great Captain America writers over the years. And it was one of these updated origins where he came out of the ice like in the mid-90s. So he had a lot more stuff to catch up with than he did when he came out in the 60s. And, you know, one of my, you know, I have several famous scenes that I can see the page in my head as I think about it. But one is Tony Stark takes him to a museum, you know, museum of recent history, thinking he'll catch him up on the stuff he missed. And he sees, you know, especially the, the, the pictures and the histories from the civil rights movements of the 60s. And he's, he, uh, 
Tony Stark shows him Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, and he's just mesmerized. His eyes are like saucers. He's just watching. He's looking up at the screen, the glow of the screen in his face, and he's almost crying. And he just, he couldn't believe it. He's just, he's, he's in love. And after he does this, after, after he gets kind of caught up with society and everything, the good and the bad, he actually has a chance to go back to the 1940s after the war ended and try to see what happened to Bucky. This is a new part of the story. It was never mentioned before. So, but he goes back and this is after being in the present day, maybe for weeks. Okay. So he's been wandering around the modern day, the nineties, you know, everything's disorienting. He doesn't like the cars. He doesn't like the rush, the fashions, everyone's talking. Oh my God. And so he goes back to the late 1945. And at first he's okay. These are my people. I recognize the way men and women are dressed. I, you know, the, the prices are better. You know, the food is what I like. It's a little calmer. But then he starts to notice, like he goes into a diner to have a burger. And the guy next to him, after the waitress takes his order, he, he slaps her on the behind. And Captain America looks at that and says, wait a minute, that's, that's, you know, people didn't do that in the 90s as much. He didn't see it when he was in the 90s. And he's like, wow, we did this a lot back then, didn't we? I, I didn't even realize that at the time, but that wasn't right. And then he goes to a baseball game. And he notices that the fans in the baseball game are segregated and all the white fans are close to are at the lower tiers of the baseball stadium and all the black fans are in the upper nosebleed seats. And he's like, Oh my God, I forgot about this. And so he goes up and sits with a couple African-American fans in the nosebleed seats. And he says, wow, I didn't, you know, because in the night he was so acclimated to all this in the 1940s, it took to being in the present, in our present day for a little bit to realize how things had really gotten better. I mean, they're different, and he didn't like the way they were different, but he realized then that we've made progress, you know, and then he said, okay, now I kind of want to be back in the 90s because society had progressed. Not perfect by any means, but, you know, there was more respect for women, more respect for African-Americans, et cetera, than he just, he forgot about when he was in the 40s because he was used to it. And on this point, on this very, very point, because you did reference that storyline in the book and him feeling sad that he wasn't there uh, be a part of the civil rights movement. Mark, would Captain America support the Black Lives Matter movement? Yes. Yes, yes. I think so too. That so. had come to that same conclusion as well, that he would definitely be supporting that. Yeah, because he's a firm anti-racist. And he's, there's been a number of times where he has expressly supported, I mean, it, it almost goes without saying. I mean, you know, it's not, it isn't just that he... You know, like they, they make the distinction between being not racist and being anti-racist. He is definitely on the anti-racist side. All superheroes, just by virtue of being heroic, are not going to be racist. But I think he is, you know, not necessarily the most anti-racist hero, but, you know, it's definitely part of who he is. He resists it and counters it when he sees it. And there's, there's several storylines. The one that I mentioned in the book is Captain America Truth, where he finds out that Back when he was off fighting in the war, the American government was trying to replicate the super soldier serum treatment with African-Americans. So it was basically the Marvel Comics version of the Tuskegee experiments. And one of those victims of the experiment, patients, whatever you want to call them, survived. And he found out about him. His name is Isaiah Bradley. And he's considered the the African-American Captain America or the first Captain America because, you know, Steve Rogers may not have been canonized Captain America by that point. And he just, he meets, you know, Captain America meets Isaiah Bradley 
And it's just like you can imagine if he'd been able to meet some of the civil rights leaders in the 60s. He's just like, I, you know, I can't believe this happened. I can't believe this happened to you. And Isaiah Bradley's grandson, Elijah Bradley, is a very young teenager, very activist, very angry. And he actually becomes a patriotic superhero in the model of Captain America in the Young Avengers called Patriot, but he does it his own way. I was actually asked this question by a journalist a couple days ago, would Captain America support Black Lives Matter? And I said, I think he would be marching, but he wouldn't be leading the march. You know, he, he would go to whoever was leading the march and he would say, I want to march with you. I want to march alongside you, but this isn't my cause to lead, but I'll support you in whatever way I can. Did you hear that, Gwen? I'm as good as a journalist in my questions. Just, that's basically what I took from I'm that glad, whole thing. I'm glad that's that's my entire soliloquy. It. it was all about blah, me at blah, the end. Blah, yeah. after that. <laughs> I'm really glad. Well, uh, I think, I guess something that I want to ask you was this discussion about honor in your book. And you talk about the complications of honor being internal, external. Could you expand on that? Yeah, just that honor is a very fraught word. And that, you know, I mean, because you, we have very positive and negative connotations of it that are somewhat related, but I, I hope are, are distinct in how I explain them in the book. You know, we, we, on the positive side, we think of honor like integrity, having personal integrity, you know, having your own standards and, and holding yourself to them. That's the way I, when I say honor, that's what I mean. But there's external honors, you know, on the, on the milder side, external honors are when you get an award, you know, or when you get a degree when you finish college or grad school, you know, that's, a, that's an external honor. But, you know, that's not why you're doing it. You're doing it for your own reasons, and that's just kind of a, a medal. But the negative sense of honor is the kind of thing that leads to honor killings in many societies, where if you're a child and you do something to disgrace your family, something that is a violation of strong social norms, then in some societies, family members will be justified in their sense to kill you, you know, and those would, they're known as honor killings. I don't want to mention any society or culture in particular, but that's more of a sense of, of injured pride that, you know, my child went off and did this. Perhaps they got married without my permission. And that embarrasses the family, that embarrasses me in terms of my community. So I have to defend that honor by striking back against my child. Okay, that's, that's definitely the negative side of honor. But like I said, that, that's more like, a, like a, a very narcissistic pride that, you know, I, I'm hurt by what my child did. So I have to punish them or I have to redeem myself. It's always in terms of them. It's not in terms of my child did something wrong, I have to correct them. But, you know, in terms of my child did something wrong, and I have to reclaim my honor, I have to reclaim my pride. Okay. okay. But again, but again, that's, that's almost extreme obedience to this social norm. You're not holding yourself to your own standard. You're holding yourself to the standard that your community is imposing on you. And then you're taking that out on your child in that specific example. Where I'm saying that the positive side of honor is like a, a hero, be it Captain America or Rudy Salo, would say, you know. Yes, I, yes, I, I love that. Thank you very much. Yeah, Thank you. you Thank you. That was good. That was good. But the guys like you say, I'm going to hold myself to these standards of courage and honesty and good looks and hold myself to that and make sure that I fulfill those. And Mark, it's not, keep going. Not there's going to gonna be other people. There's going to be a third episode yeah. with you. There is. In going. fact, I'm just going to have him talk all day. I mean, he hasn't made fun of my skinny legs yet. I mean, it's perfect. It's wonderful.
But you, see, but you see what I'm saying. You know, the best sense of honor is when you establish standards for yourself and then you hold yourself to them because that's who you want to be. Not to impress anybody, not to blindly adhere to someone else's standards, but just maintaining your own personal integrity. And these, um, when you were talking about, a, or when you write about a divided America, but we agree on some ideals and we have the justice, equality, and liberty, which I think we mentioned at the beginning. Right. Your discussion of justice reminded me of a classic problem in Euthyphro, where, so the Socratic dialogue where Socrates meets this young lawyer, Euthyphro, who is about to put his own father on trial. And Socrates says to Euthyphro, like, do you think, do you know what morality is? Do you feel comfortable prosecuting your own father for being immoral? Can you define what it means to be moral? And Euthyphro stumbles over this. And at one point, Euthyphro says, but Socrates, we would, all the gods would agree that this was unjust. And uh, Socrates responds by saying, everybody agrees that the unjust should be punished. What we disagree on is what makes something unjust. That's what it was reminding me of. So if you were to go like today, if you were to go to a Trump rally or I don't know, Biden's basement and you were to ask, um, should the unjust be punished? Everybody would agree on that. Right. But then when you start to ask, well, what constitutes unjust? We, that's where we get the divide. Right. And if you could expand more on today, America today. Well, let me get to that in a minute, because that, that also brings up something, a point I wanted to make about. Iron Man, Tony Stark, when you know, his, his classic fights arguments with Captain America, says, you're never wrong. You're always right. That's so frustrating. How can the rest of us compare with you when you're always right? And Captain America says, I don't think I'm always right. Because he remembers the few mistakes he's made, such as letting Bucky die or watching Bucky die. And the, the point is, you know, every, that's part of what makes Captain America's morals seem simplistic, is he seems, oh, right and wrong are so simple for him. And it's not. Because again, he's going from these very general virtues, these very general ideas of what justice and right and wrong are. But to put those into action, he has to use his judgment, take into account the circumstances, etc., which is very hard in, in difficult moral situations, very hard to tell what is right and what is wrong. What makes Captain America, what makes it look simple for Captain America is once he has identified the right thing to do, he does it. He's resolute. He's determined. Nothing's going to shake that once he's determined what the right thing to do is, unless something happens to change his mind. Like, you know, at the end of the Civil War storyline, big, huge cataclysmic battle between the two forces of heroes. And then Captain America, at the end, notices all of the destruction. They're laying waste to New York City. Even if no civilians died, which is, you know, naive, but let's say no civilians died, it was all property damage. Still, people are going to be putting New York City back together for years after this fight. And then he realizes the line is something like, we're winning the argument, but we're losing the war. It's some, you know, pithy phrase like that. But he says, we're not fighting for what's right anymore. We're just fighting. So that's what he says. We're not fighting for what's right anymore. We're just fighting. So he lays down a shield and he says, I surrender. So that's a case where for the whole story, he was resolutely determined. He determined that it was right to resist registration. And he was devoted to that up until the last minute when he was convinced otherwise. So that's really, that's probably what makes Captain America the most unrealistic is he has a truly indomitable will. Once he determines the right thing to do, nothing is going to stop him unless something convinces him otherwise. And the fact that he can be convinced otherwise is also one of his admirable traits. I mean, I find his most admirable virtue to be his humility. 
that even though you have everyone telling him you're the greatest in the world, you're the perfect man, you're the sentinel of liberty, you're the defender of American values, we couldn't do without you. Captain America doesn't believe any of that. He just thinks he's a guy from Brooklyn who got lucky, who got blessed, and now is trying to do his job. And so he doesn't buy into any praise that anyone gives him. No, no, I'm not trying to, to dodge your question. What I wrote at the end of the book about how by paying attention to the ideals that we have in common, you know, the justice, equality, liberty, and, and what I, the argument I made in the book was that Americans on both sides of all stripes we can agree that these values are important. And I think our, I thought our disagreements dealt with how we interpreted those. Okay. Take just a very simple left, right distinction on liberty. Okay. And the conservatives generally put more weight on economic liberty than civil liberties. And the liberals typically do the opposite, put more weight on civil liberties than economic liberties. And libertarians disagree that there's any distinction at all. But there you could have, so you, you'd obviously ask anybody, any American, do you believe in liberty? Of course I do. Well, what does that mean to you? And, that, and then tracing that out is going to lead to distinctions. Okay. Same with justice, like your example from Socrates. Okay. We all believe in justice, but you know, it's justice in terms of what and justice for whom. Equality is probably the one that falls the fastest because obviously in the last four years, you know, like I said, I wrote this book, I published this book in 2014, probably wrote it a couple of years before that. And it, we were in a different age back then. And I have to admit, I look back in the times and I thought I believed in the myth of the post-racial society. I took the election of Barack Obama in 2008 and his re-election in 2012 as you know a sign that we took a step. Not everyone voted for him. Not everyone agreed with his policies. But the fact that we elected an African-American man as president in relative peace, I thought we crossed a line. And I didn't think that it meant racism was gone. Okay, for eight years, besides, you know, certain extreme conservative voices constantly hammering on irrelevant topics, it seemed that we'd come to accept this. And I, I bought into the post-racial thing. I, I wish I hadn't. Okay. Now I couldn't write the same thing that I wrote that I published in 2014, that we're all united around the same basic values. I, I just don't think so anymore. That's very sad. Now, obviously, you know, as demonstrated by all the racial tensions, not just over the last month, but over the last four years, and not only racial tensions, but all the sexism and all the homophobia and transphobia, anti-Semitism and everything that has become more apparent. I'm not saying developed in the last four years, but just that it became, it became more brazen. You hit the nail on the head in the fact on a lot of things there. Um, that, that was that was great. I mean, I totally feel you a hundred percent. You what you hit the nail on the head is that it was always there. It's just yeah. what has really changed from two thousand and eight to two thousand sixteen to two thousand twenty, and that is the platforms. Look at the expansion mm, of the mm -hmm. personal platforms that have occurred oh. during that time. The explosion of Facebook, the explosion of Twitter, the explosion of anybody and everybody being able to put a video anywhere. The explosion of YouTube. All that hate has been there and 
I don't know. Maybe maybe we are a little bit better than we were 12 years ago, not notwithstanding the, the state that we're in today, but the platforms of the hate and the fact that, that anybody and everybody can, can get the hate out there. And so now we're kind of like, oh my gosh, I didn't know that the world was, th- was this racist. Yeah, it, yeah, it has been. You can go talk to any African-American that's out there. Exactly. Like, listen, exactly. I, listen, man, I got a bunch of stuff. I'm Arab American. I look white. Uh, my name sounds white, and the things that I've heard about Arab Americans oh, or God. Iranian Americans or Muslims or anything, you know, again, I'm Christian too, so, you know, I, I come across as just a, any other white guy. The things that I've heard throughout my life, because the way I look and, I, and I, I'm a chameleon, would blow people's minds away. When I've told stories, people are like, nah, you're making that up. And I'm like, no. No, no, I'm, I'm telling you, this is what happened, and I documented it and everything. It's always been there. Oh, yeah, right. I, I might be a little hopeful that there has been some progression, just, be, you know, couples intermarrying, just because people educating themselves, corporations taking better stances. Yeah. Things have always been bad. I'm just praying that they can continue to get just 1% better, uh, and that might, and things might go worse for a little while, but I do still think... In the end, we as a society will be better off going through these tough times. We just, we just needed to go through them. Yeah, and I think that what will happen is that these ideals of justice, equality, and liberty, what's happening? My daughter has something to say about that. <laughs> she, should. she should have a voice. I was so she is the future. She is the future. Um, that what's happening is that people who say that they believe in these things, they are being challenged. Right. Right. They're, they're, and that's not about the, the fact that all this, you know, hate and negative sentiment has been exposed. I mean, you know, it's it's been brought into the light, so to speak. And that is sort of, you know, I mean, it, you know, it's had disastrous consequences, of course. But the fact that we know about it, that my white privilege guarded me from seeing all this before. But now I've been forced to see it, reckon with it and acknowledge it. And now I have to try to fight against it. And yeah, so there is a certain, you know, now we know what we're up against sense to it. And that provides hope. It, yes. does, it does provide hope. Yes. And, 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 and look, we all can be better human beings. We're not all Captain Americas who are, who are perfect. We all have flaws. We all can be educated. We all can learn how to be better and more accepting human beings. Every single one of us, you, me, everybody, but it's about the natural progression. What do you mean? Right. You're on mute. I thought you were on mute. She, see, see, whenever, see, whenever I bring down her image, her superhero image, she, she attacks me because it's like a Tony Stark versus Captain America thing. Um, well, it's right to the point of the, the situation or context of character is that it's to allow for, allow for change, to allow for development. Um, that when you're in a new context, that if you have that core value, that it's okay if it expands and it grows. I've used the example from my students of Katniss from The Hunger Games, that she is exhibiting the virtue of courage. And when she is thrown into The Hunger Games, that she's able to maintain that in context, even though it needs to be expressed differently. But that's what makes her the hero of the story. Just going back to, to, to virtues again, Mark, was she kidding when she, I mean, this, I'm really, I'm just asking, this is a serious question. I'm not joking. Was she, was Gwen serious when she said wit is a virtue? Like, or is that a joke? Well, it could be, it could be, it, it, you know, there's a you know, good naturedness is generally a virtue. You know, it uh, makes you a better person. It makes you a more sociable person. Wit is definitely a part of that. 
is there a list that I can go look and, and check off all the things that I, all the virtues I don't have and can be better at? I'd like to become better. So that's what I'm, I'm trying to ask. Well, you know, different virtue ethicists have different lists. I mean, there's no canonical list. I mean, you know, I use courage and honesty just because they're obvious ones, just like, you know, murder and lying are obvious moral wrongs. But, you know, the different virtue ethicists and talking about the, the classical Greeks like Aristotle and then the Stoics, the Roman and Greek Stoics, you know, they all had different ideas, but they're all coming from what characteristics promote a good life and an ethical life, but they all had different ideas of what those could be. And in the book, I didn't really pull from any particular list or ones. Right. I tried to find the ones that Captain America exemplified and the ones that made him a role model. And they wouldn't necessarily tick all the boxes that Aristotle had or that Seneca had or whatever. Because for one second there, I felt pretty good about myself that I had a virtue that Captain America didn't have. I don't think he's as witty as me. But no, if, you, if it's no. really just a subset of good naturedness, I mean, that dude is very good natured. Oh, yeah. But yeah, I just, you made me feel, you, you put me on a pedestal at the beginning of the show and now I'm destroyed. I just wanted to leave that <laughs> out there. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Mark, thank you so much. So we're gonna have to do another one. Should we oh, do? What, we're gonna have to do Iron Man. Where? What do you think? Oh, uh, we, we wanna, could do we'll Iron do Man. I haven't written that book yet. Oh no, no, no. Okay. What? <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. We'll do another one that you've written. We don't do. Uh, that's the whole point. We're gonna have to do another one. Yeah, you're, well, you're well, phenomenal, well, man. Your, well, your well, books well, are great. You. Thank you. I was just gonna say the Civil War book. You know, I, I focus, that's the only book I've written so far that focuses just on one storyline, but it focuses on the three main heroes in that storyline who are Captain America, Iron Man, and Spider-Man. And they form such a great triangle because you have Captain America and Iron Man having their opposing views about utilitarianism and deontology. And then you have Spider-Man kind of acting in the, in the story overall as the point of view character for the reader. You know, because he's always been kind of the, the normal guy in the Marvel Universe. He has powers, but he's still, he's a schlub. He can't keep a job, can't keep a girlfriend, etc. And here he is interacting with super soldiers and billionaires in armor and Asgardian gods. And so he's kind of the, the common man. And he, throughout the story, he kind of reminds Captain America and Iron Man when they're fighting over their grandiose ideals. Spider-Man is the one saying, look, and that person's out of a job. What's that person going to do? What am I going to do? My identity is exposed. This is going to affect my family. You know, these are just ideas to you guys that are fighting over them, but they affect people like me. And so he's kind of this you know, fulcrum that the, the two kind of balance against. And he actually, or you can kind of call him a moral barometer in that he sides with Iron Man at first because he thinks he's got a good point. But then he realizes that Captain America's got the better point. So he goes over to him. And in the meantime, he's challenging both of them. You know, unfortunately, in the movie, you know, Captain America just kind of made that little cameo in the movie. But in the in the comic book, he was really the third important figure in the story. Oh, thank you so much, Mark. You're great. Oh, you guys are great. I appreciate it. No, you, it. you, re you really are. I, I, really, <laughs> I really enjoy your books and how you juxtapose the comic book storylines with teachings and philosophy. I'm trying to become a more educated person. I'm trying to become a, a more virtuous person. I'm trying to become a implement philosophy into my life and your books are the best way for me to do so. Oh, so I want to thank you so for much. And I know how hard that was for you, for you to write one book, let alone all the books that you've written. And so just, <laughs> I want to say thank you for taking that time for doing so. Cause they're great. Oh, thank you so much, Rudy. Coming from you, that means a lot. <laughs> you're, you are a good BSer, though. That is pretty good. You're, you're, you're almost as good as me, man. That's, that's pretty good. Not very virtuous, but I like it. <laughs> what a compliment. <laughs>
Okay, Mark. Well, have a good afternoon and we'll be in touch for the third episode with you. Absolutely. Can't wait. Okay. Bye. Bye bye. Take care. Thank you for listening. Thank you to my co host, Rudy. You are fantastic. And yes, you are witty and it is a virtue. And thank you, Mark, for being part of the show again. We look forward to another conversation with you. I will link Mark's website to the show notes. So if you want to learn more about him and about his writings, maybe you want to include it in your curriculum if you're a teacher. If you have any thoughts, ruminations, musings about the show, feel free to get in touch. Good is in the details pod at gmail.com. All right. And I hope you're enjoying your 4th of July, that you're social distancing, wearing a mask, washing your hands, and not hoarding toilet paper. Bye. Hey, everyone. How are you? Hey, Rudy. Hey, how's it going, Mark? Hey, Gwen. Let me, let me give me one second. I just got to get rid of the snoring Boston Terrier really quick. <laughs> <laughs>